I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Josh Schifferson, Associate Professor of International Relations at Boston University and author of Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think you're the first person to use my new title. So it's a real pleasure to hear that out loud. Congratulations on it. I want to pick your brain about U.S. strategy with respect to China. But first, I actually want to ask you about an academic article by two well-known IR experts, Daniel Dudney and, uh, of Johns Hopkins and John Eikenberry of Princeton. They take aim at the restraint school in U.S. foreign policy debates of which you are an exponent, um, which they refer to as the Quincy Coalition. It serves as a critique of Trump's foreign policy uh, as in the tradition of this restraint school and as an assessment of this coalition's you know, different groups and ideologies around this idea of a narrower, more modest, restrained US foreign policy. I, I just wonder what you thought about that piece. You know, it's it's a good question. I should say that I am still kind of mulling it over because it only came out last week. Um, but but I'll be honest, I was somewhat underwhelmed by it on, on a couple of levels. I should be clear here that both Eikenberry and Dudney are great scholars. I consider them you know, friendly mentors. I, I respect them immensely. Um, but I found the argument underwhelming. And I guess I'll make it under, I'll, I'll make three points here. Point number one, um, they try to portray Mr. Trump as a proponent of restraints, but, but that uh, charge doesn't really stick. He tries, they try to lump Quincy into the Trump coalition as well and kind of paint with a broad brush uh, on that score. But that doesn't really stick. After all, Trump expanded NATO. He promoted a much more aggressive, bullish American stance in the Asia Pacific. Yes, he made some uh, hostile language towards NATO, but NATO, uh, the U.S. presence in Europe continues unabated. He never pulled the U.S. out of Afghanistan. The U.S. continued in, in the Middle East. It's still very active in Africa. Mr. Trump was not a restrainer. And so to kind of paint the Quincy coalition, as they call it, as part of the Trump coalition, it's very much trying to, dan- uh, I think, try to critique the restraint brand by labeling it uh, as an alliance with uh, a, a, a tendentious political force in American politics today. So I found that underwhelming, number one. Number two, I, I found their argument that this is all about ideas and that restraint lacks a positive agenda. I found that deeply underwhelming. Now, admittedly, I, I am a realist, so uh, I don't believe ideas matter overly much, even in foreign policy. But another way to portray their argument is that, look, after a three decades of American preeminence of unipolarity in international affairs, uh, the world has become more conflictual. There are structural pressures upon the United States. And as a result, the grand strategy that has serviced American foreign policy, or that American foreign policy has serviced, take your pick, is now under duress. And so restraint isn't necessarily a product of a war of ideas, but a reflection of structural forces. I think they may be putting the cart before the horse. And then finally, the the there the claims that restraint lacks a positive vision of what America can do in the world, whereas their favorite approach of liberal internationalism embedded supposedly in deep engagement, a grand strategy of deep engagement, uh, does, strikes me as a false dichotomy. Point number one, liberal internationalism and restraint are not actually at odds with each other. It's very plausible 
to have a restrained liberal internationalism in the sense of free trade, diplomacy, support for international institutions, number one. But then number two, let's also not overstate the benefits to liberal, to liberal internationalism that deep engagement has resulted in. We're talking about a very militarized American grand strategy. We're talking about a very hierarchical system or hegemonic system, as some people would call it, where the United States calls many of the shots of the world. Uh, this is not liberal in any deep sense of the term. It is internationalist, but it's not liberal in any meaningful sense of the term. So I think they're trying in that regard to castigate the restraint coalition for being too grim and maybe misstating uh, what it brings to the table while seeking odes to deep engagement liberal internationalism while ignoring the downsides to their own preferred uh, strategy. So in summary, not a huge fan. That was a, that was actually incredibly thorough. You you covered most of the points. Um, you know, I think they talk about the American project uh, in, in the second half of the 20th century in U.S. foreign policy as uh, very, very successful. And uh, my sense is that they don't really scrutinize, they don't sort of differentiate enough the stated goals of American foreign policy in that era and up to now with how it's actually gone, what our actions have actually been. They sort of take for granted the state of stated goals and assume too much viability for actually impacting the world in that way. It's a kind of strong argument for technocracy, I think, uh, that the uh, policymakers can ably manipulate the strings of international order if we just get the ideas right. And power maximization and other uh, crucial things that realists pay attention to perhaps uh, don't get in the way of that analysis. Right. They had this wonderful line that really struck me that, that their preferred grand strategy, what the United States has done, is to minimize the effects of anarchy, right? International institutions most prominently in the process. Um, and I think that gives away a lot of the show. I think it highlights how what they think of uh, deep engagement liberal internationalism as doing. That is, it mitigates the phenomenon that in international relations, states can do any darn thing uh, they like. And so in their view, American activism, American deep engagement mitigates that problem. Support for international institutions mitigates that problem. Um, and, and I just think that's wrong, flat out wrong, uh, a number of levels. Even if states are embedded in international institutions, they can still choose to defect, number one, just any state can choose to not cooperate with an international institution. But more importantly, going back to your point about the American project, John, if you think about the broad 75-year sweep of post-war American grand strategy, there's a lot of inconsistency in there, even though the United States has been a big proponent and a big uh, actor in international institutions. The United States has attacked some countries and not others. It has imposed sanctions on some countries and not others. It has promoted treaties that it then didn't ratify. It then upheld treaties that it didn't ratify. Uh, there's a very little consistency uh, in, Amer in the post-war uh, post American project, suggesting to me that this mitigation of anarchy that they hang the major gains to deep engagement on uh, just don't really exist in any profound or meaningful sense of the term. It's just kind of asserted, not proven. So for listeners that don't know, you know, these two kind of camps that are engaged in a major debate on U.S. grand strategy as a whole uh, are also engaging in a, in a debate about how to confront China. Uh, you wrote a really excellent article a while back in the Washington Quarterly on this uh, topic, and you argue that the ascendant strategy 
coming out of Washington to compete with China and arrest or even reverse its rise relative to the United States can be termed neo-primacy. Explain a bit about uh, what that term means and, and why you think it's appropriate. Sure. And I'll apologize in advance to listeners if this gets a little jargony, a little bit wonky. Uh, what I call neo-primacy, let me back up for a second. After the Cold War, the United States embraced a grand strategy that we can broadly call primacy. Now, there were different variants of this, but the idea behind primacy was that the United States would somehow use a combination of its own incredible resources, its own material power, its own latent power, and its activism in international institutions and international affairs to prevent peer competitors from reemerging, a peer competitor like the Soviet Union or before that Nazi Germany, so that the U.S. would remain the sole superpower, hence primacy, right, being number one. Um, I, nevertheless, for better, worse, or indifferent, this grand strategy uh, didn't work. And I have a couple of argue, I have a couple of ideas that aren't in the article as to why it didn't work. But the bottom line is that over the last decade or so, we've seen a hardening foreign policy consensus across both the right and the left in academia and policy circles that says China is today, there a China China today is either a peer competitor or is darn close to being a peer competitor. Right, that, that, that this primacist impulse that the United States had after the Cold War kind of failed. We see China referred to as a great power. We see it called the pacing threat. We see the Defense Department, the national security apparatus focusing upon China as, I'm not going to call it the new Soviet Union, but a profound competitor that will be a generational, if not longer, struggle uh, with and against. Um, and embedded in this recognition that there is now a peer competitor, though, it's not just going, oh, there's a peer competitor. We need to manage relations with it and kind of accept it on its own terms. Instead, the rhetoric behind Mr. Obama, Mr. Trump, and now Mr. Biden have been all has been all about finding some way for the United States to outcompete China, to check China, to keep China in place, to somehow regain the American lead. And it's a claim, in other words, that the United States, despite having lost its unipolar dominance, its post-Cold War preeminence of being the sole superpower needs to now somehow regain. And yes, there are different schools of thought within that. Mr. Trump is much, was much more uh, focused on kind of internal industrial policy and throwing at barriers. Mr. Biden is much more inclined to try to check China through working with partners and allies and somehow uh, not militarizing the competition too much in the near term. But the idea that the United States somehow needs to regain its number one status in the world uh, is alive and well. That's why I call it neo-primacy. It's an idea that says somehow the United States has to ratchet up the the tension or find its own way of bootstrapping itself to regain a level of dominance that that existed, say, in 1994, 1995. Bruce Jenelson, who teaches at Duke University, wrote a recent essay in Foreign Policy. Uh, He wrote that Quote, the China threat is being inflated in ways that, as with the Soviet threat in the Cold War and terrorism post 9-11, are counterproductive for foreign policy strategy and distort domestic politics in dangerous ways. Do you agree with that and, and t- maybe talk about some examples? Yeah, I, I actually think Bruce had an excellent point on that one. I, I, I think there are two different ways I think Bruce's point is correct. So the idea being that the U.S. shouldn't overhype. The China threat. And I, I think that's true in a couple of different ways. Um, point number one, internationally, we have to remember that even if, even if 
the U.S. isn't number one, right? A, a threat, let's back up, a threat is an external actor that has the capability and the will to impose harm upon one's country, right? That, that's the definition of a threat. And so let, let's play that out. Even if the U.S. isn't, isn't number one anymore or is a bot in a bipolar peer-on-peer competition with China, China isn't invading the United States. The U.S. economy is gargantuanly huge. It will retain robust relationships, militarized or otherwise, with Europe, the Middle East, Latin America. So in that sense, even if China is rising or risen, as the case might be, the China threat to U.S. national security is not very large, is not going to be very large. It'll be a problem, but it's not going to be very large. I want to be very precise in my language here. So in that sense, Bruce is right. We're overinflating the China threat by portraying China as a threat to the international system, the international order, the visceral American interests that drive day in, day out decisions. And I think that's deeply wrong. That that view is deeply wrong. And Bruce did a really wonderful job in doing and clarifying that. Point number one. Point number two, it's also dangerous domestically because as we've seen the last several election cycles, um, many of the internal problems that the United States has had, whether it be in political cohesion, uh, political corruption at home, are being blamed on nefarious foreign actors, Russia and China, most dramatically. And so by linking problems in the American domestic scene with nefarious autocratic external actors that are imperiling of the American system, so to speak, uh, we're, we're, we're blinding ourselves to the issues at home, the real source of the problems, right? Countries like Russia and China wouldn't have the ability to manipulate American domestic politics and get involved in corruption uh, cycles and so on if there weren't originally problems at home to begin with. So by hanging so much on China's nefarious activities at home, we are kind of allowing the problems, the real source of the problems to continue. And so Bruce is spot on in doing that. And by the way, I'm not even mentioning things like xenophobia, anti-Asian, uh, hate all of which is real and which will grow because as we know from uh, the Cold War era and the and the German era, uh, whenever the United States faces a peer competitor and decides to militarize the competition, uh, we tend to target Groups that sound, you know, quote unquote, ethnic. This was the era, you know, the war, in the World War eras, we had people change their last names to sound less German. After the Cold War, if you were even suspected of having communist sympathies or a Soviet or a Russian sounding name, you were suspect to various investigations. And so there, there's also the domestic um, navel gaze and the domestic xenophobia that can result from this as well. But I'm going to bracket that for the time being because that's a conversation for a, for a different time. Some analysts claim that the situation we now face with China is evidence that our previous approach, one they call engagement, to refer to our welcoming of China into the so-called U.S.-led liberal order with the, their inclusion in the WTO and other such institutions, do you agree that, that what we now face is a result of the failure, essentially, of uh, welcoming China into the order and not containing it earlier? You know, that's a really, really good question. Um, and I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, I'll be I'll be upfront in saying that. I can tell a story in two different ways. Let me lay it out for a second. Uh, point number one: It's very plausible that if the United States had not uh, engaged China, China's growth would have been slower, or maybe perhaps never even took off at all. Perhaps the U.S. would have had a greater period of time to be the world's number one superpower, right? To be the world's sole superpower. Excuse me. 
But it's equally plausible in that scenario that you'd be left with a China that felt excluded and outside. I'm not going to say the international order, but they had fewer reasons to cooperate even on tactical or operational issues with the United States when it was in the United States' interest. So you could have a much more mercurial kind of renegade revisionist China, even though I don't like that term revisionist uh, China, if you didn't have engagement. Perhaps you would have gained the bounty of a more a longer period of American dominance, but at the risk of you know a regional destabilizing force or a more destabilizing force. The flip side of it is, of course, had you done, it's possible that engagement may have allowed China to rise faster, but at the benefit being that it's less inclined to throw its weight around in international affairs. I want to be clear about that. Uh, today, we're discussing China as being much more assertive in international affairs, taking a much more activist position. I'm a little skeptical as to how much more activist we're, we're talking about. I agree that it's been more activist. I'm skeptical of the scope of that activism. But be that as it may, it's possible that uh, by engaging China, you kind of limited the scope of that activism and therefore made it a more manageable prop. You have China that's trying to assert itself in East Asia, but you don't have China that's threatening war with Japan today, threatening war with Taiwan, invading Vietnam, and so on and so forth. It's a... Um, it, it, it's asserting itself through broadly non-militarized uh, channels, which isn't to say China's defense buildup isn't occurring, just that there is no actual use of force to date. So I'm, I'm very much on the fence as to whether engagement failed or not. I, I do think um, engagement was taken, but, but here's what I will say. I do think that engagement was taken as a little, was taken a little too unscrupulously. You know, it was kind of taken as good unto itself, and maybe some of the parameters were not fully evaluated. So I, I think it could we could have had a wiser engagement policy early on, which, by the way, maybe where we're heading these days. You tiptoed onto the term revisionist with some reluctance, um, yeah. which I understand. That's a, that's a term that a lot of people are using to describe China's posture right now. But you also say that if we follow along the policy of neo-primacy, as you call it, um, it might turn the United States into a bit of a revisionist power. Explain what you mean there. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I try to avoid the term revisionism is the question of what is being revised is, is itself constantly changing, right? The international, quote unquote, the international order today is not the same thing as it was in 1990, 1995, 2010. The distribution of power, the balance of power is not the same today as it was 2000, you know, 2005, 2000, whatever it is. So the idea of revisionism implies kind of a static situation that you know is being altered. But in reality, international politics is inherently fluid. So which actors are revisionist or status quo oriented is really, really opaque and hard to see. It's very much in the eye of the beholder. Nevertheless, you're right to call me out. I have used the term revisionist. Uh, it's, a, it's a useful shorthand. And what I mean by that in the American context, at least, is that if the United States tries to or continues pursuing this neo-primacy strategy that, that I lay out in the Washington Quarterly that I've discussed here a little bit, it will become a highly revisionist actor in the sense that, on the one hand, if China is in fact a great power or a superpower or the pacing threat, as we call it, and the United States tries to regain its number one status in the world, uh, but it's an uncontested number one status in the world by either accelerating America's own growth, checking China's growth, or both, by definition, we are revising the situation today. 
right? We're, we're preserving our status, our, our the United States status, regaining certainly what was there in the 1990s at the expense of undoing what China currently experiences. That is highly revisionist. Unless you think it just it's just the U.S. on China, keep in mind that other countries in the world clearly see the situation as uh, China having a much broader uh, scope of action in international affairs today. So if the U.S. tries to check China, push it down, regain its number one uh, uncontested number one status, the U.S. is somehow revising the, the distribution of power in international affairs in a deep and profound way. So I worry that if the United States continues pursuing neoprimacy, it will end up embracing policies that are deeply, deeply revisionist, that may antagonize other actors, certainly antagonize China, and may leave the United States more and more isolated. Because after all, what looks like a security-seeking effort on the United States' part, checking China's continued growth to preserve the United States' post-Cold War dominance, can end up taking steps that threaten the security of other actors. If they court war with China, if it requires them harming their economies, so on and so forth, all of which is likely to generate an incentive for those other countries, countries like Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, even some European actors, Russia, to distance themselves from the United States, not because they don't trust the United States or are afraid, or are afraid of the United States, but because they don't want to be hit by the blowback from any U.S.-Chinese uh, contest. And we've seen this oscillate a little bit in East Asia today. There's a concept in international relations that's kind of borrowed from human psychology called prospect theory. It basically talks about how, you know, people tend to, uh, the loss of something that you have hurts more than the good feeling you get when you achieve something. And as I look at U.S., the U.S. position in the world and U.S. foreign policy, you know, we have long had a grand strategy that is so expansive that it, it goes well beyond our basic security needs, right? But as our relative power in the system declines and as countries like China apparently rise, we do have a kind of demotion uh, from the world leader and global cop and kind of uncontested shaper of the order to this kind of potential second position, which might hurt really bad psychologically, but doesn't necessarily threaten core interests, as we discussed before. Do you think that it might be a bit of what's going on? Yeah, I, I actually think that, uh, you know, it's hard to ascribe grand strategy to psychology in the sense that there are so many people involved and they would all have to experience a similar psychological disposition that uh it, the, the the link is not quite there but i do agree with you and this is where i think your argument is actually very insightful that for many people who make american grand strategy who were around and very active at the end of the cold war in the 1990s and the aughts and the 2010s the, the heyday of American dominance in international affairs. Yes, this is very much a revision of what they're used to. And so for the somewhat smaller set of the foreign policy establishment, uh, I don't think they're unaware of the tendency, but I do think this sense of loss and therefore being inclined to gamble, to risk, to take greater uh, uh, risky positions to kind of hold on to the status quo or hold on or regain what the United States once had, I think that actually generates a lot of insight as to how they're behaving, as to what they're thinking. 
And some of them are, are more, are more I, I suspect, more aware of the phenomenon than others or the risks being run. And I don't blame uh, policymakers for being afraid or being reluctant to I- accept a change in the distribution of power. No country likes losing non-relative terms. You know, th- these are the things that tend to generate some of the most intense wars in human history. So I, I don't begrudge American policymakers for being worried about this uh, inversion. But I do think that this explains a lot of what's going on. Yeah. The way that China strategy is kind of manifesting um, uh, as public policy and through the rhetoric of, of uh, policymakers, it's a kind of heavily ideological contest. It's being framed as authoritarianism versus democracy and so on. And some of the elements that we see in China, uh, like um, disrespect for basic individual rights, what the government is doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or Hong Kongers and so on, um, there's an attempt by some people to make those s- at least a part of the core defining features over which the United States and China fight and differentiate themselves. Is that helpful over the longer term uh, or no? People who are trying to insert greater ideology or domestic politics into the situation. And, and, I sh- and being an academic, I, I have to very bluntly say that autocracy is not an ideology. Totalitarianism is, fascism is, uh, uh, communism, demo- uh, liberalism certainly are. But autocracy and democracy are not ideologies. And so people are lumping, the, not you, John, but people in the policy discourse are lumping these things together. China is an autocracy. America is a democracy. Therefore, it's an ideological contest. No, these are about regime types. And for people who deeply believe that domestic politics uh, shape the nature of states, domestic politics, either in terms of their ideologies or their government types, then of course China's domestic apparatus and America's domestic apparatus uh, matter profoundly to, to, to the grand strategies. Nevertheless, I, I think this is not a helpful framing for understanding the U.S.-China competition today or even international politics. After all, states often cooperate with uh, governments and state, states that often don't share domestic uh, institutions, domestic ideologies that are similar often find ways of cooperating, number one. And even if they don't find ways of being best friends and allies, international politics very often requires states to accept the unpalatable and uh, and accept situations where I say, okay, well, I don't like how you operate at home, but I'm not willing to bear the risks and costs of trying to change you and vice versa. So it requires a degree of mutual recognition. You know, actually, weirdly enough, this is actually the subject of Henry Kissinger's first book, A World Restored, talking about how you balance these uh, competing domestic imperatives in the international space. So I don't think, given that background, that framing the U.S.-China contest in ideological terms is going to be helpful. Number one, it actually suggests that the U.S. and China, neither one can survive, thrive, accept the situation unless the other one looks the same way which implies actually quite a bit of conflict, quite a bit of uh, nastiness, and, and a lot, and a lot of uh, dangers for both actors along the way. If you can't possibly trust or tolerate the other side unless they look and smell like you, this is a situation for uh, not just an expensive grand strategy on the part of the United States, but if China mirrors that, a very risky and expansive and costly strategy on the part of China, right, where each side could be supporting domestic regime change in the other.
a highly conflictual, dangerous situation, point number one. Point number two, it also suggests that the U.S. can't possibly cooperate with other countries against China unless they look and smell and act the same way as the United States, which almost by definition means you're not going to cooperate with countries such as the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, I could, uh, Russia against China. So you're almost you're kind of cat, uh, cutting off your possible uh, list of partners, many of whom have their own incentives because they don't care as much about domestic politics uh, to compete against China as the United States. So the United States actually worsens its position by inserting domestic politics and ideology into the, 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 the equation. So I, I, I think this is not just the wrong way of framing it. I think it's a deeply harmful and escalatory way of framing the matter. So in the spirit of making sure that uh, restrainer types offer a positive agenda, we've talked a lot about you know, critiquing the, the current approach or the uh, approach of, of others. Right. Uh, how should we approach China? What's a, what's a strategy that makes sense given the threats and, and challenges that China does pose? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very good question. It's one I've given a little bit of thought to. Uh, not, not, not a huge, not as much thought as it probably deserves. I'm only one person and China is a very big and important country. So please bear with me, listeners, as I kind of meander my way through this. But number one, it, it, it involves encouraging those countries around China's perimeter that have the most to lose from any Chinese militancy, and I'm emphasizing militarized behavior, to take the steps to check Chinese behavior. This would, this would involve Japan, this would involve the Philippines, probably Vietnam, and yes, perhaps even Taiwan, if Taiwan were to be considered, is considered a independent country. I'm not taking a position on that uh, today. I'll just follow the U.S. government's line on that. Uh, so it's encouraging, number one, local coalitions to form and check China. And thankfully, East Asia is a maritime domain, largely, and defensive technology is such that small countries often have the wherewithal to check big countries in terms of military power, point number one. Point number two, I would like to see the United States continue to have economic uh, cooperation with China, economic engagement with China but in ways that don't undercut the vital American uh, military base, the vital American high-end technology base. You know, during the Cold War, we had all sorts of restrictions on trade with the Soviet Union, the so-called COCOM list, right, where you were not allowed to trade certain high-tech, dual-use technologies. I think uh, we've already seen efforts in that direction vis-a-vis -vis the PRC. I would like to see that sort of approach uh, revitalized and the U.S. continue to trade with China uh, below that level. And I say that because if and when a sustained competition with China emerges, you, the United States, want to have as many levers to use against the PRC, of which economic uh, statecraft is one of them. So you don't want to you don't want to cut off uh, cooperation with China in the near term because it may actually harm your ability to compete with China in the long term. Point number two. Point number three, I do agree that a more diplom uh, that sustained American diplomacy in and around East Asia, including vis -vis the PRC, is warranted. You cannot, you, the United States, cannot just uh, ignore the possibility that China may become a regional threat. So the U.S. needs to have robust defense ties, robust diplomatic ties, excuse me, with countries like Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, and yes, China as well, because one wants to understand what is going on in the Chinese leadership situation. One wants to have the ability to kind of reassure when possible. And if everything is oriented as a militarized relationship, then the risk of misperceptions will go up quite profoundly. So what I'm, what I'm outlining here then 
is um, a, a highly restrained grand strategy in the military sphere, but a highly internationalist strategy in the diplomatic, economic, and we could lump into that uh, environmental, institutional, so on and so forth sphere, where the U.S. would simply be opening the door to greater cooperation, in my estimation, by virtue of reducing some of the military aspects. And indeed, I, I actually think this is one of the unrecognized virtues uh, of restraint. You know, we tend to think that all things in international affairs point in the same direction, that if one has a competitive military relationship, one also has a competitive economic and diplomatic relationship. And I think that's true to a large degree. But by the same logic, if you reduce the degree of military competition between the U.S. and China, it may make China more cooperative, more forward engaged on diplomatic issues and economic issues, certainly on international issues. And even if not China, by virtue of reducing the chance of a U.S. PRC contest that other countries in the region don't want, may increase the appeal of the American approach to international affairs uh, in countries such as Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, so on and so forth. Again, reducing the military commitment, the hallmark of a restrained grand strategy, reducing the risk to which the United States is out there leading the charge against various foreign enemies, or enemies in quotation marks, uh, while creating the possibility of greater cooperation below military level and certainly sustaining a very large degree of diplomatic, economic, and international uh, engagement on the part of the United States below that military level. So one thing that strikes me, just thinking historically, you know, I think back to that famous Cold War document, NSC 68, um, and how some people describe that, even the kind of uh, inflated hyperbolic language, as an attempt to kind of concentrate the, the minds of those in government and uh, propel them towards some larger ideal within a strategy or to make them fearful enough of things that they weren't quite aware of in order to pursue a strategy and turn the ship of state towards a particular approach. And you know, these days, I think maybe the kind of things we talked about before, China as uh, encroaching upon us, becoming the number one, or China as a you know particular abuser of liberal ideas, um, that might be an attempt to kind of cast an overarching mission on some kind of technocratic approach. Yours seems to lack that, and and you know that is probably a commendation uh, of it. It's probably a good aspect, but. Given the apparent reality that American government and possibly the American body politic kind of needs that overarching theme, if you were to try to extract one out of out of your strategy, what might that sound and look like? How can you sell this? How can it make sense to people? Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I, I actually think the American people are much smarter and much savvier than often recognized. Look, I, I've uh, without tooting my own horn, I lived all around this country. I think I lived in every part of the country except the mountain states, for, you know, at least for periods of time. Um, people get it. They get it in their bones. So if you say to them, yeah, look, China is a threat or China is a challenge. Uh, we don't want to risk war with China. We have tools of comp competing. We don't need to be number one to benefit at home, to have a stable economy, to have security for ourselves, military security, didn't promote uh, our values in countries that are at least receptive to our approach. 
I think you can explain it in those terms. You know, you, you want to call it regular, regularized competition, regulated competition, or just uh, savvy competition. I think the American people will certainly get that. They, they, the American people aren't uh, foolish. They, they, they get that a competition with China over the nature of the domestic arrangements is going to be a situation where they are bearing incredible costs, bearing incredible risk and sacrificing a lot in the near term, all for an outcome that may not actually uh, occur. Right? You may not ever see regime change or domestic transformation in the PRC. And at a time when the American people are talking about debt at home, talking about pocketbook issues, worried about the futures of their children, worried about the security of themselves in retirement, worried about mom, you know, mom and dad in their current retirement. I don't think it's hard to worry about the state of American infrastructure. I don't think it's hard to say to the American people, well, which would you rather have? A competition with China for this nebulous thing that may never occur called the U.S.'s number one again versus things that you can eat and sleep and touch every day. I don't think that's a hard sell. Josh Jefferson, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John.